Before we begin, we gotta give a special shout out to our newest Patreon comrades, Joe Green and Michael. We love you. Seriously, big time crushes. This is Sam. This is Ron. And this is Southpaw. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you'll help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Today on Southpaw, we have Ronald Purser. Ronald is a writer, a professor of management at San Francisco State University, as well as an ordained Buddhist teacher. In spite of his professorial title, he's never taken one business class and comes from the field of organizational behavior. In fact, much of his thoughts on capitalism might have come from his days as a unionized trade person in the South Side of Chicago. He has written a new book called McMindfulness how mindfulness became the new capitalist spirituality, which I can't recommend highly enough to all of our listeners. Hi, Ron. Hi, Sam. So let's just jump right into it. Why did you write this book? Well, around 2010, I started watching these YouTube videos uh, of, of uh, Google. Uh, uh, Chade uh, Meng Tan, who wrote the best-selling book, Search Inside Yourself, uh, which is uh, about uh, Google's uh, corporate mindfulness program. But that was actually before he wrote the book. He he had like a long parade of people coming into Google. They were uh, mindfulness teachers, very well-known mindfulness teachers, neuroscientists, Buddhist teachers. And I thought, wow, this is really kind of an interesting thing. I, I, I'd never thought that uh, mindfulness would, would be... Uh, employed and deployed in corporations. And having uh, been a, a corporate management consultant for 20 years, and I'm a management professor for another uh, 30 years now, uh, I have quite a, a good handle on the history of management, science, so-called science, and behavioral science techniques that have been used going way back to uh, uh, Frederick Taylor uh, in the early 1900s. He was uh, kind of the first management consultant. Uh, it was called uh, scientific management. And it, <laughs> it, it, yeah, even Taylor called it a mental revolution. <laughs> um, basically, uh, his, his technique was to uh, train immigrant laborers uh, uh, to find the one best way to perform uh, this very hard labor uh, that was going on in the early uh, factory system. Uh, 
but you know, throughout uh, since Taylor, uh, you know, there's kind of a a really long history of uh, how uh, both psych- psychologists, industrial psychologists, and uh, management consultants have have you know, and this took me a while to come to this conclusion. Uh, they're servants of power. I mean. Uh, you know, for example, Elton Mayo, who uh, was the father of the what was called the human relations movement. This was right after Taylorism. Uh, so with Taylor, we're kind of trying to discipline the body, trying to get uh, laborers to to perform these tasks in the most efficient way. Uh, but then uh, we started to understand that, wait a minute, uh, uh, people aren't automatons. They're not just extensions of, of the factory machine. They actually have feelings. They have needs. <laughs> uh, and so <laughs> Mayo came in and said, look, we got we to gotta find ways to uh, pay attention uh, to employees and listen to them and uh, try to understand their complaints and this sort of thing. And so, you know, I don't want to go into the deep history of that, uh, but fast forward uh, to Google, and now we have uh, uh, mindfulness entering the scene. And that really uh, sparked my interest. Uh, and uh, I've been a practicing uh, Buddhist and student of Buddhism for about 40 years or so. So I think it's that intersection of those two streams of uh uh, that uh, kind of developed into my critique. And that began really with the article in the Huffington Post, uh, which I co-authored with the Buddhist uh, teacher and scholar, David Loy. And that was an article, it was called Beyond McMindfulness, uh, which was published in July of 2013. And it was a critique of, of pretty much the corporate mindfulness movement that was just beginning then. Uh, and it, it kind of went viral and caused a lot of really, I think, healthy debate and conversations, uh, both among uh, people in the secular mindfulness community, secular Buddhism. Uh, and uh, that, that really kind of, I think, stirred the, the, the mindfulness backlash, actually, as, as it's uh, called now. Uh, and I just kept tabs on what was uh, going on since then. Uh, and I, I, I became more uh, critical in, in terms of getting other kind of theoretical critiques under my belt. For example, I was not aware of what even neoliberalism meant. Yeah, I didn't really know in 2013, 14. I, I was, and so I started reading about that. I started reading a lot of uh, uh, academics that were writing about neoliberalism and how it affected our sense of self, our sense of identity. Uh, and then I, I just kept looking at what was going on. I started going to workshops, you know, like um, <laughs> fly on the wall. I went to the first Google public workshop that was offered. Their uh, their kind of spinoff called the Search Inside Yourself. Uh, Leadership Institute uh, in San Francisco. I went to a two-day workshop. And let me just backtrack that. Uh, at first, I was actually quite, uh, I wasn't as skeptical when I first went there. I was actually talking to one of the leaders who taught that workshop, who was uh, the executive director of uh, the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute. We had uh, a couple phone conversations, and I, I thought there might be potential for uh, uh, 
mindfulness and corporations to uh, be more subversive and um, uh, more critical in terms of calling into question uh, and being more kind of uh, systemic in the way they approached uh, the problems that uh, people are experiencing, especially the the stress and everything that people are feeling now in, in the workplace. So I, I, I didn't go in being, uh, you know, skeptical or critical, but after the workshop, I said, oh boy, this is, uh, this is not good. <laughs> um, so that, that's kind of what led me to, to write the book. Now, how did you even know to start going down the path of like looking at things through the lens of neoliberalist critique? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I can't really pinpoint what the turning point was uh, or what the genesis of that was. Um, I must have just started reading something and it triggered my interest. Um, but the more I got into understanding how neoliberalism wasn't just some sort of historical, economic, and political philosophy, uh, uh, then I really saw how uh, mindfulness is, is operating in, in terms of an ideological force. Uh, so maybe I should talk a little bit about that. Uh, you know, neoliberalism, a lot of people, when I, I, I tell a lot of my friends, uh, Hey, uh, do you know about neoliberalism? Oh, they said, well, what's that? You know, uh, it, 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 it doesn't make sense because, <laughs> uh, liberal sounds liberal and, but it's not liberal. It's extremely conservative. Uh, but it's, it amounts to, uh, a way of looking at human beings. Uh, as rational and economic actors. Um, it sees individuals basically as entrepreneurs uh, running their own enterprise. I call that the business of me incorporated. So everyone is sort of an atomized individual that's in competition with others. And the whole kind of ideology is that competition and free markets is how our society should be run. And so therefore we should eradicate suppress anything that's getting in the way of competition and free markets. So the state, the government, uh, unions, community associations, they're just obstacles, right, that get in the way of the smooth operation of uh, marketplace capitalism. Uh, so in a free market-based society, then, uh, you know, the, the story is, the storyline is that, uh, you know, we're all free. We can all, uh, you know, maximize and actualize our own personal freedom and human potential because we're free. Nobody's getting in the way of it. And uh, so therefore, the the flip side of that is then then we're fully responsible, right? We shouldn't we shouldn't have to rely on anything except ourselves. Uh, and so this is where uh, there's this kind of obsession with enhancing uh, our own self-worth and human capital because that makes us better entrepreneurs in the marketplace. Um, the other thing that neoliberalism does is it basically individualizes any social and political problem. Um, and so mindfulness to me, when I began to look at it more closely, I said, is mindfulness playing an ideological function or role in producing the, the ideal neoliberal subject? <laughs> you know, another thing that comes into play here <clears throat> is this whole notion in mindfulness of self-regulation emotional self-regulation and that um that's another matter that we can get into later but that is sort of almost uh, uh producing a certain sort of what i call mindful correctness 
in terms of uh, a particular bandwidth of, of politically acceptable emotions. Uh, because if, if you are uh, an entrepreneur and you're trying to maximize your human capital, uh, then there are certain emotions that uh, wouldn't really be valued, <laughs> for example, in the corporate uh, world, like anger and frustration and, and, and things like this. Stoicism is also getting very popular with the same crowd. I think so. If you didn't say it was neoliberalism and somebody just heard it, they would also think, hey, he's just defining self-help because it sounds interchangeable, right? Well, absolutely. The whole self-help movement and self-help genre, the whole wellness industry. Yes, these are all tied together. These are all tied together. Uh, I think that's the kind of the overarching umbrella uh, of these uh, 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 techniques. You have positive psychology the focus on making employees and people more resilient. <laughs> more gritty. More gritty. Yeah, grit is the new one. I, I didn't even know about that one until about a month ago or so. It just seems like new synonyms for the same shit, you know? <laughs> yeah, self-care, you know. Uh, but kind of the whole uh, impetus is this this kind of message to turn inward, right? We, we turn inward to this more private uh, interior. We can like uh, tap into our inner resources and pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Uh, and what that does then is it, it basically sends the, uh, the message again, you're free, you can fully actualize yourself, isolate it from the wider social, political, economic structures, right? And, and Michel Foucault, the uh, French philosopher, uh, he called this the neoliberal turn. And now Foucault is a very difficult person to understand. And I am not an expert on Foucault. I've just barely read some of his material. It's difficult to read. So I was very selective for what I needed to, to, to utilize from his work. But there is this concept, another strange word, with a concept he calls governmentality. Now, that's enough to turn anyone off right away. <laughs> <laughs> and I try not to be too academic in, in, in this in the book that I wrote. Um, but um, he, he basically said that uh, government should not be understood just as a political mechanism, uh, but in a much broader sense uh, of how power operates. And he's basically trying to say that... Uh, uh, yeah, basically his critique is that power operates in a very different way in neoliberal society than it did, let's say, under medieval rulers or kings and monarchs and so forth. We'll get into that in a bit. But uh, he's trying to say how institutions can shape and regulate and inform our behaviors, our attitudes, our affective uh, sensibilities. Uh, and he's looking at how knowledge and expertise, especially institutionalized, can uh, kind of uh, seep into people's uh, psyches and uh, work at a very micro level of power. Uh, the, the really interesting thing about it is that, uh, and he refers to this as disciplinary power, which is productive, uh, but it operates and it's constituted through the sort of rhetoric that we're free and enterprising individuals who can govern ourselves. So it's very similar to the self-help genre, right? That the self-help genre valorizes, it kind of valorizes individual autonomy, 
freedom, choice, authenticity, all these words that we hear a lot. So this ideology of autonomy, basically, it penetrates power. It's the penetration of power into our psyche, uh, but disguised as an expansion of our personal, personal freedom. And, and I think this is why it's so insidious now, why all these techniques uh, are, are so popular. Uh, and, it, and another, uh, some people call this the therapeutic culture. Uh, you know, the discourse of mindfulness uh, basically reframes our, our predicaments and our challenges, our circumstances, uh, as simply as a product of our individual choices. So I like C. Wright Mills. I, I talk about him a lot uh, often. Uh, he wrote a book called The Sociological Imagination. Uh, and he said, the, socio the sociological imagination imagination." is where we try to uh, understand how our personal troubles are actually linked to political and social, socioeconomic conditions. But what neoliberalism does, it says, no, they're not. It's all on you. It individualizes those problems. It delinks that connection. So everything's framed as uh, being psychological in nature. Uh, uh, you know, stress is, is viewed as a, as a pathology. Uh, and, um, so in a way, uh, the perversion of mindfulness, it's helping people to, uh, as Byung-Chul Han, uh, another great critical theorist says, it's helping us to, uh, auto exploit ourselves. Uh, and so we're, we're basically, uh, self-optimizing, you know, this whole movement towards hacking, neurohacking and all this yes. crap. Uh, it's all part of that. Um. And but it, it's kind of a double speak, you know. It's a double speak of freedom, uh, but it's self-centered freedoms basically, because we're not, we're, we're we we really have lost, you know, kind of this uh, civic kind of uh, mindfulness, the sense of uh, that uh, society does exist, uh, contrary to uh, Margaret Thatcher, who made the famous statement, "There is no such thing as society; only individuals." For people who are not familiar with George Orwell, can you explain what doublespeak is? Doublespeak is, is using euphemisms um, and words to kind of cloak what you're really doing. Uh, is, you know, in the military, uh, talk about uh, uh, surgical strikes, for example. Right, that's doublespeak. Uh, compassionate conservatism, uh, I can't remember exactly the term, but it's basically along those lines. Yeah, I see people use that with Me Too these days, where they're using it as a critique of Me Too, where they're saying, people are going too crazy with this Me Too stuff. They're calling everything Me Too. This woman is saying she got Me Too'd and she's freaking out. And then I'll be like, what do you mean by Me Too then? What happened to this woman? And then you realize they're using the term Me Too to cloak rape. Oh, what happened to this woman was rape, right? They're making it sound a lot less harmful Oh boy, by calling it Me Too. And I see that more and more now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's... it's uh... It's, it's really, uh, I think, uh, quite prevalent now. This is part of the problem that, uh, that I really uh, had to educate myself on with uh, uh, theorists like uh, Michel Foucault and Wendy Brown, who uh, really has a really good book out, uh, David Harvey. These are all scholars uh, in uh, uh, critiquing ne neoliberalism. I think you can't go into looking at self-help or wellness with an eye of like trying to figure out what is this thing doing? 
and and you start searching and trying to analyze, you will run into stuff about neoliberalism because it is the only way to explain what is happening here. Even without the intent, even if you didn't run into an article in searching and trying to analyze it and, and understand what is happening, you'll run into those materials. Yeah. Now, if you if you look at one of the key uh, phrases, for example, John Kabat-Zinn uses, who is often considered the father of the modern mindfulness movement, he says, we're all suffering from a thinking disease. You know, so, you know, basically the source of problems in society uh, are, are just inside our own heads. And so, therefore, if we practice mindfulness, then we can all be happy, you know? Uh, <laughs> um, so before we get too ahead of ourselves, let's define what is mindfulness and what's the point of it. Oh boy, that is a really hard question. Um, <laughs> I see mindfulness now is almost like a, a Rorschach ink plot. <laughs> um, it, you know, whoever looks at that ink plot can can interpret it a different way. Uh, and and I'm not the only one who said that. A Bhikkhu Bodhi, a, a venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's a, a very uh, outspoken American born. Uh, monk, Theravada monk said, yeah, you know, mindfulness has become so vague and elastic that, you know, who knows what it means now. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, and I get this question a lot. So I like, well, what mindfulness are you talking about? Are you talking about corporate mindfulness? Are you talking about clinical mindfulness? Are you talking about Buddhist mindfulness? And even when you say Buddhist mindfulness, what Buddhist mindfulness? Are you like, like probably 50 different variations within Buddhism too, because there's not one Buddhism. There's all kinds of schools and traditions and so forth. I think there's the same Rorschach test for the point of it too. Whenever I ask, especially people who are all about mindfulness, when I ask them, what's the point of it? Each person gives it a different purpose or a different point. It'll help you do this. It'll help you do that. Right. Like it's whatever they want. Well, yeah. Well, then we're talking about, you know, the more modern contemporary mindfulness and yeah when you you know that's really the question what is mindfulness for uh and uh you know now it's utilitarian it's instrumental so it becomes a technique it becomes a tool that can be applied but not utilitarian ethical no 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 useful barry madgett who wrote a really good book he's a he's a uh, psychiatrist and uh also a, a zen teacher in new york city wrote a really good book called what's wrong with mindfulness he calls it the four gain approach to mindfulness so mindfulness has to have some sort of uh tangible outcome of some kind in in the contemporary uh form that we're seeing but that's a good question i i mean that's why i became skeptical i started asking those questions what is mindfulness for is it just a palliative for reducing stress and uh, or can it be uh, used in different ways or is it just being used to help us accommodate to the status quo? A lot of the answers I seem to get from people is that it helps them at work. Mm -hmm. and, and another issue is, is mindfulness, is mindfulness practice really something, is it really kind of a, a reductive ingredient that we can, you know, just extract from its context? Uh, is it just a tool? You know, uh, uh, I don't know if he, I never pronounce his name right. Tich Nhat Hanh, I'm probably not pronouncing it correctly. Uh, but uh, a friend of mine who's been around uh, uh, him for a long time told me a story where he gathered all his students around and, and kind of scolded them. And so just, I want you to remember that mindfulness is not a tool. And I, I thought that was very, 
very insightful to say that. Um, so I'm I'm kind of skirting around your question here, trying to wa- I'm trying to ease my way into it. <laughs> um, uh, you know, we can go into the the typical uh, response, which is if you go to the early Buddhist uh, tradition, the Theravada tradition, um, and we go to the uh, canon. The the canon is sort of the uh, the early teachings of the Buddha. There is a, a teaching in in that tradition uh, called the uh, uh, establishing the foundations of mindfulness, and it's the Satipatthana Sutra. Uh, that's kind of the uh, uh, I don't know. I wouldn't say gold standard, but it's it's definitely the the earliest formulation of where we see mindfulness actually being explained and defined, uh, and uh, it wasn't until the 19th century uh, that uh, an Oriental scholar uh, by the name of T. Riz Davids, actually he was Welsh, uh, that he encountered uh, this sutra, and you know he was uh, looking at the Pali language, was which was the oral uh, early language uh, in the Buddhist tradition, and when he came across uh, the word sati. Uh, he said, "Well, how do I translate this? You know, what am I going to do? You know." And uh, he, uh, what came to him was uh, an Anglican prayer. Uh, that and in the Anglican prayer was, "Be mindful of the needs of others." In other words, to keep their needs in mind, and that 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 triggered him to uh, to translate sati as uh, mindfulness. Uh, and that the 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 meaning of sati uh, has to do with the ability to remember, to recollect, uh, to call to mind, uh, to bring to mind. And the question is to bring to mind what? Um, and within the context of that sutra or that teaching, is certain instructions, certain reflections, certain uh, doctrines, even in in the core teaching on mindfulness. So. The purpose of mindfulness uh, within that context of the Buddhist path was uh, to uh, cultivate a faculty of mind that was able to remember both skillful and unskillful actions. And so in that way, uh, you know, mindfulness is a way of expanding the temporal field of vision. Uh, you know, a lot of people think that mindfulness is all about being focused on the present moment, but it's not necessarily the case. And it certainly uh, wasn't the case in this sutra in terms, it wasn't a passive or non-judgmental awareness of the present moment. But I'm not, I'm not downplaying the, the importance of cultivating, calling to mind, or having a presence of mind. Uh, but the, we, it was more of an active engagement, and, and it, it used the uh, discernment uh, that was capable of, of really differentiating uh, what was going to move in the direction of uh, wholesomeness uh, and what was going to move in the direction of suffering. And that's why they differentiated what they called uh, samasati, which is right mindfulness, from uh, micha sati, which was wrong mindfulness. Uh, so, you know, the whole intended purpose was uh, to uh, abandon uh, mental states, emotional states that would lead to suffering or stress in the future. Um, the other aspect I think that uh, really is underappreciated too is uh, how mindfulness is situated within 
the Buddhist tradition, which is often referred to as the three the three trainings. Uh, and uh, first training, uh, shila, uh, which is sometimes translated as morality or ethics and virtue. Uh, the the second training was samadhi, uh, concentration, uh, or, uh, sometimes referred to as mind trainings. Uh, Training in mental stability, uh, developing a, an undistracted mind, uh, subduing the kleshas, or which are the mental and emotional afflictions, and then the third training in wisdom or insight. So these trainings all work together. Uh, they're not necessarily uh, sequential or linear, uh, but they they support each other. Uh, but ultimately, the training in wisdom is where we use the concentrated mind to engage in uh, vipassana, which actually means clear seeing into the nature of, of phenomena. Uh, so mindfulness is really a support for training and wisdom to develop uh, this kind of uh, clear seeing into the ultimate nature of reality and seeing emptiness and interdependence of, of all phenomena. And those all tie into uh, what was called the Eightfold Noble Path, these three trainings. They're all kind of correlated with different factors. Uh, there's eight factors. And mindfulness, right mindfulness, was only was the seventh factor of the eight, eight factors uh, on that path. So this is where I get into when you decontextualize uh, uh, mindfulness. And, you know, mindfulness training... Uh, in the classic tradition, is is not just watching your breath. It's is there's a whole sixteen step process. Uh, there's four foundations of mindfulness that uh, the practitioner uh, goes through, and what we see in clinical mindfulness or psychotherapeutic mindfulness is really a very kind of uh, small extraction uh, of that practice for therapeutic uh, uh, purposes. Let's then go back to John Cabot Zen, who you mentioned earlier. Who is he, and how would he define mindfulness? Yeah, John Cabot Zen. Um, he uh, was the founder of mindfulness-based stress reduction (MBSR) in 1979. Although it wasn't called that at the time, uh, he was a P he received a PhD at MIT in molecular biology. Uh, his father was a uh, quite a famous, I think, molecular biologist, or he was in the same field, I think. Um, and he was a he was a, a Buddhist. Uh, he was uh, training at the Cambridge uh, Insight uh, Center in Cambridge, Mass. And he took a lot of uh, workshops and retreats at uh, Bari uh, at the Insight uh, Meditation Society. And he was on a retreat, a 10-day retreat or something like that, and he had a vision of how uh, these practices could be adapted uh, to be used uh, in the hospital setting because uh, he started his clinic, I think it was called the Stress Reduction Clinic when it first started. And it didn't use the term mindfulness at all or anything like that. And he started in 1979 in the basement of this hospital. Uh, it wasn't until like 1993 when Bill Moyer uh, on a public uh, broadcasting station, PBS, had a special called Healing the Mind. And uh, Bill Moyer sat in on his class and that was broadcast. 
And that really made him popular. And he has a lot of best-selling books that have been in several uh, iterations of, of, of printings and so forth. Um, so um, he defines mindfulness, uh, if I can remember, it's something like uh, paying attention uh, to the present moment, uh, pur purposefully paying attention to the present moment, non-judgmentally or something like that. Um, and it's an eight-week program uh, that has now uh, become very popular uh, all over the world. And he's trained a lot of, uh, at his center there, trained a lot of MBSR teachers. And um, But it started out, uh, started out as a, uh, a kind of an alternative medicine, complementary medicine uh, uh, program uh, for people who were suffering from chronic stress and uh, other kinds of chronic pain and and things like that. And uh, so that that's kind of how he defines it. You mentioned earlier about the definition of sati and how it became basically Anglicanized, right? With taking something from a prayer. Yeah. So how do we go from the Protestant work ethic to mindfulness in the workplace? Yeah. So the Protestant work ethic is basically uh, this value of hard work and being thrifty, People in that period of time, uh, they didn't know whether they were going to go to heaven or not, right? So uh, the way to uh, sort of uh, place your bets was to uh, work really hard. Um, <laughs> to work really hard because uh, good works, you know, you, you could be chosen by, you know, uh, uh, really toiling and, and um, laboring as hard as you could. Suffering suffering. Uh, so your salvation might be insured through your good works. Um, uh, but the, 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 the other part of that, I think, is deferring gratification too. Uh, you know, because you would, you know, you would tolerate, you know, these really hard conditions. Uh, it was, a, it was kind of a, another kind of a way of, uh, uh, demonstrating your character and, uh, being able to be, perhaps the chosen one, you know. Um, and character is something that the right yeah. wing and self-help always brings up. Oh, we don't need to fix the country. We just, just character. But, you know, as Max Weber, uh, you know, he wrote about the, this quite a bit that the Protestant ethic or Protestant work ethic was really tied to the economic success of capitalism, the beginning, the early stages of capitalism, right? Uh, and so, in that respect, uh, yeah. So when we when we look at mindfulness, uh, what I see with that is that uh, you know mindfulness uh, you know is productive, right? It's a it can be used for for improving productivity, uh, a way for helping uh, employees to tolerate uh, toxic conditions. Sounds a lot similar, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and in that respect, uh, there's also uh, this obsessive self-monitoring that goes on. And as I mentioned him earlier, uh, Byung-Chul Han, he, he said that mindfulness, well, I don't think he says mindfulness, that's how I interpret it, but it's, it's kind of a reinvention of the, of the Protestant ethic. And so instead of, uh, uh, you know, searching out our sins, which uh, instead we search out uh, negative thoughts, we're hunting down, you know, we're, we're kind of obsessively monitoring ourselves in a way. Um, and so I think that's where the linkage is to uh, how it ties into uh, how mindfulness has become a form of dis disciplinary power that's productive in that respect. 
yeah, to me, it, it seems like uh, like corporate mind control, right? You're not free to change your environment or ask for better rights, but you are free to choose to be happy or not, right? You don't need unions or better pay. You just need mindfulness to reduce your stress. Yeah, or yoga or whatever it may be. <laughs> 10 minute yoga break. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I mean, workplace stress is, is definitely uh, has increased. I mean, there's, there's definitely surveys on that and, and empirical data. Uh, it's just that it's a poor diagnosis. I mean, I mean, that's what my critique is, is that, oh, okay, you know, people are stressed because they're not paying attention. <laughs> they're not, they're not being mindful. They're not concentrated. They're, not, they're distracted. They're just, that's the problem. They're distracted. Yeah. Oh, uh, okay, okay. And they're overreacting. You know, what are they overreacting to? Well, you know, the boss is telling me I have to work on Saturday or, or you know, other, and this is a poor diagnosis. The, what this does is it's, it, it, it basically takes the corporation or management off the hook for the responsibility of their culture. And how is this not also victim blaming, you know? Well, yeah, it's victim blaming because it targets the individual, uh, locates the problem within the individual. Uh, again, that's in individualizing these problems. That's what neoliberalism does. And um, so then we come in with the cure, you know, the, the mindful merchants come in with the cure. And say, and, and by the way, who buys these programs? Management. Yeah, they love it, right? I mean, and and I went to a couple of workshops, and this one particular workshop that I talk about in the book, where uh, the workshop was all about how to sell corporate mindfulness programs. It was all about the tactics and strategies, and uh, so they lead and they they tell their sponsors that it will improve productivity. Uh, I mean, they they make that extremely clear. Because uh, you're not, this is not some sort of altruistic thing that people are, are buying. Uh, I mean, uh, if if you started, uh, you know, let's say you scaled up mindfulness and it turned out that uh, you were losing your top talent, people start quitting, or the productivity went down, you think they'd kill that program in a minute. Um, and I, I pose this question to uh, Chadi Mengtan, the so-called jolly good fellow of, of Google's program once. He, 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 he actually walked into one of my presentations uh, uh, in Boston, and I said, you know, what if your top talent at Google, your top engineers, software engineers, started quitting because they started practicing mindfulness? And the HR, uh, the exit interview, you know, they asked them, well, why'd you quit? Well, I took this mindfulness program, and I realized this place sucks, and I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> You know, I don't think uh, management would uh, be too too fond of that program after a while. So, obviously, it's uh, it's not doing that. Uh, it is serving the interest of management, as many other wellness programs are, um, and uh, it basically deflects attention away from the real workplace stressors. That's another thing uh, neoliberalism does, right? You're not allowed to be altruistic or do good unless it can help the bottom line, right? Whenever I hear uh, neoliberals talking about, we need more diversity, we need more this, we need more social activism. They're always like, because it's ultimately better for the bottom line for the company. It's only allowed if it does good for the company. And if it doesn't, then it's worthless. Well, yeah. I mean, that's always been the case uh, historically um, for any program. Um, and um, there's a really good... Uh, professor at uh, Stanford, at the Stanford uh, Graduate Business School, 
Jeffrey Pfeffer, and he's been looking at this for a while, but his focus is more on wellness programs. And, you know, he, he basically said, you know, these wellness programs are worthless. I mean, it's all about uh, the workplace stress is, is caused by, uh, it's not caused by people, you know, not being mindful enough and all that. It, it, the workplace stressors are structural. They're cultural, you know, or, you know, they're, they're, they're basically uh, tied into job, the feeling of insecurity, right? You, know, you might be laid off. Uh, um, and, and a lot of jobs are bullshit jobs, right? Uh, uh, do you know the work of, uh, of Graber? David Graber, yeah. David Graber, yeah. So people are like, you know, disengaged. I mean, that's one of the tropes you hear from the corporate mindfulness uh, uh, trainers and consultants. They, they say, yeah, you know, um, look at this Gallup poll. Seven out of 10 people say they're disengaged from work. We have an employee disengagement problem. But they never go beyond that. They never ask why. Instead, they say, well, look, your employees are disengaged and we got the cure for you. We got the program, can help them become more focused, more concentrated, more productive. But we're not looking at the systemic problem. We're not looking at why are people so disengaged from the workplace, right? The nature of work itself. <laughs> the nature of work itself within a capitalist economy. Um, and, and so, you know, this is another reason why, you know, I think we need to look at stress as as a political and social issue, almost like a public health issue. And you know, one of the articles that just came out by Pfeffer in Fast Company, he said he was giving a talk, and and there were some lawyers in his in the audience, and they said that they thought there was going to be lawsuits now, you know, by like like class action lawsuits by employees or unions or whatever, to say, hey, you know. Stress is a social problem. It's a political problem. And um, we, we saw the same thing with big tobacco, right? That, you know, smoking is a public health issue. And, and you have all these lawsuits start, you know, to be targeted at tobacco. Um, um, so I, I think that's an important point. And um, what the mindfulness uh, community uh they subscribe to this privatization of stress. They subscribe to the idea that stress is just some sort of uh, maladaptation of the individual to, to, to the environment because it comes out of a biomedical paradigm, the way the stress has been uh, understood uh, historically. It's self-imposed, right? Self-imposed, yeah, yeah. There's actually a, there's actually a mindfulness uh, author David Gellis, who works for the New York Times, and uh, and he made a statement something like that that stress is self imposed. Of course, he did. <laughs> yeah, he wrote a book called Mindful Work. Okay. So a lot of mindfulness uh, teachers and and practitioners, mindfulness consultants, and so forth, <laughs> um, they they kind of buy into this idea uh, uh, of stress as being just a maladaptation to the environment. And that comes out of kind of a biomedical paradigm. It's, uh, it's kind of a medicalized way of understanding stress, um, seen as just an individual uh, pathology or dysfunction, right? You know, we, we have a hard time managing our thoughts, our emotions, our mental ruminations. And uh, uh, so it's a framing that has this framing of stress in that way, basically then uh, crowds out or delimits 
other alternative explanations of stress. Um, you know, so this idea that we're suffering from a thinking disease, stress is all inside our heads, uh, all this kind of rhetoric, I think, is plays into that. Uh, and so we're admonished, right, for not being mindful, not paying attention. And uh, if we look more closely uh, at that kind of narrative, uh, uh, here's what I hear when I when I hear mindfulness teachers uh, speak at conference. They say, uh, you know, we're just maladapted cavemen, right? We're maladapted cavemen inhabiting 21st century lifestyles. Uh, but unlike uh, the hunter and gatherers, our ancestors, uh, you know, when they when they were had to run away from a, a saber toothed tiger. They could go back to their cave and, you know, kind of de-stress for like a, a long time. Uh, but we don't have that luxury. So uh, we become chronically stressed. We accumulate stress. But the unspoken assumption in that narrative is if we had only evolved, right, further biologically, that is, if we didn't inherit this outmoded fight-flight system, then we wouldn't have any stress or conflicts. But the problem is uh, that we have not evolved biologically like that. So we're kind of stuck with this uh, uh, hardwired fight-flight system. But the other unspoken assumption is that a capitalist economy is just fine as it is. And, and our problem is that we're not adapting to it. So we need to compensate. We need to self-correct. Now, what this narrative does is it naturalizes stress, right? It takes the capitalist system as a given to which we must adapt. And in a way, it's a survival of the fittest ideology dressed up in a biomedical uh, narrative. Um, so it's a very strange idea that I hear often repeated, it's repeated very often, that the, we have this ongoing battle between our Stone Age physiology and modern lifestyles. Uh, and uh, so mindfulness is then touted as a way that we could change our brains, right? We can eradicate, we can eradicate these uh, antiquated problems. So there's nothing inherently wrong with corporate, uh, the corporate culture, right, <laughs> for example. It's just our maladaptive responses that make us unhappy. We've inherited this flawed biology. And um, so, you know, this is a very, this is a form of biological reductionism. Uh, and uh, what that does, as I mentioned, is this discourse is, has an ideological uh, component to it. And that's what mindfulness advocates don't recognize. The discourse, this discourse can actually play on our fears. You know, stress is an epidemic. It's omnipresent. It's inevitable. Uh, it's an individual level problem. And that basically decontextualizes it from the historical and the social and the political context. And so then we end up with uh, basically a doctrine of stress. Uh, so, you know, imagine a physician who uh, comes across a patient that's suffering from dysentery. Uh, and let's say the physician uh, diagnoses their source of diarrhea uh, to a dysfunction in their intestines. And they treat that person with some sort of antibiotic or anything, uh, something like that. That's fine. They'll get some temporary relief, but the source is the contaminated water supply, right? So in a way, um, we're kind of like treating dysentery of, of stress, the, the epidemic of stress with mindfulness techniques, uh, but we're not really uh, looking at the source. 
We're not looking at the, the root cause, which is much more social and political. Uh, and, uh, and that's, I think, problematic. Uh, you know, and if you look at the history of stress, we go back to, you know, the father of stress was Hans Selig. And he wrote a very popular book called The Stress of Life. I, I, wanna, I don't want to get into all the uh, history of, of him, but he has a very similar history of, uh, as John Kabat-Zinn. He became very uh, evangelical. He started making very grandiose uh, and an utopian kind of politically prescriptive uh, uh, theories, uh, you know, that uh, you know, for a better society and so forth. Now, basically, he was peddling his his uh, approach to stress and stress management, which brings up an interesting point that stress management was quite popular in the 70s and, and early 80s. There was a whole kind of fad around stress management. So to me, it's, it's you know, mindfulness and corporations is, is, is not that, uh, nothing new, really. It's just kind of a new uh, dressing that's put on it. Uh, but Selly has a dark history that a lot of people, and I was quite surprised to discover this. He has a really dark side to his work because uh, the big tobacco uh, industry was bankrolling a lot of his, uh, not just his research, but um, basically uh, telling him what to say in public. And he would he would testify as an expert witness uh, when they were. Uh, you know, he's Canadian, so. Uh, he would be before uh, the Canadian government when they were trying to uh, uh, call into question the tobacco industry. And he would say, oh, no, 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 they're fine. And tobacco has nothing to do with it. It's all about, it's it's really stress. That's, that's the underlying cause of cardiovascular disease and cancer and everything. Um, but it's, it's quite amazing if you look at uh, the research that came out uh, uh, about 10 years ago where they, they went into all these archives and found how much money that Selly was being paid uh, by the tobacco industry. It was, and back at that time, you know, like in the seventies, it was a huge amount of money. So he was bought off. So stress as an epidemic was bankrolled by big tobacco in part to kind of distract yes. from big tobacco being the problem of a lot of our health maladies. <laughs> right. They, the, the cigarette manufacturers, they were interested in marketing. Actually, here's, here's the real, here's the real ringer here is that they were interested in marketing smoking as a form of stress relief. I still hear people say that to this day. They're like, I don't know what's worse because I'm smoking. That's bad for me, but it helps me reduce stress and stress is bad for me. So what am I going to do? Right. Do people still say that? Yeah. And they use, they use Sally to distort and uh, uh, cover up the links between tobacco and chronic illness. And uh, so they, you know, they had their lawyers and their executives uh, actually uh, sometimes even write uh, the memos and letters uh, directly to Sally. They could, they told them, you know, what to say in these government hearings and stuff. And uh, that, that continued actually, you might remember the type A personality, how that was very popular. <laughs> It's still popular. It's yeah. still popular. Yeah. And and so the Tobacco Institute uh, and Philip Morris, they poured tons of money into that research and actually uh, funded a center at the at UCSF, University of California, San Francisco. Uh, they poured like $11 million uh, into the Meyer Friedman Institute. Um, and, you know, this is happening uh, as we speak, because uh, in other ways, other right-wing institutions, such as uh, 
the John Templeton Foundation, which uh, if you go to their website, um, they're, they, they're totally neoliberal. Uh, they're totally neoliberal in that they're funding the positive psychology research, but they've also funded Mind and Life Institute to the to about I think one point one million dollars. Um, so there's something going on there behind the scenes that we often don't recognize in terms of the money involved, uh, to the financial interest involved. In, in I think that's even more so in, uh, with people like Martin Seglement who's the father of positive psychology. Tremendous amount of funding uh, for that research and for those sorts of programs. Yes, that's absolutely true. I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? Like big corporations, right-wing institutions would want to research anything that says you're the problem, right? Whereas socialists will want to like put money into campaigns or forms of reform to change the system itself. Yes, excellent point. Absolutely right. I think you're Right on there. Absolutely. Now, some call mindfulness a form of corporate piracy, where it takes traditional knowledge, privatizes it without asking, and then bastardizes it for profit. You could say the same thing for a lot of uh, new age mysticism and self-help in general. So along with mindfulness, what are your thoughts about just like new age mysticism, self-help? Is it all neoliberal corporate piracy? Is it more libertarian now than it is leftist? Did it ever used to be pure? Well, I think the idea of purity is a myth. Um, okay. <laughs> it's, you know, this is sometimes, uh, I think, a misconception that um, that's some sort of pure, authentic mindfulness. Uh I don't think so. I don't think there is. But I, what I do see and what is on the historical record is how Asian spiritualities, going back to the 18th and 19th centuries, have been uh, commodified, co-opted, and corporatized. Um, uh, and that, that is historically uh, true. Uh, there's, there's a great book that really influenced me a lot, and it was called The Selling uh, of Spirituality, The Silent Takeover of religion by Jeremy Carrot and Richard King. And they basically, this book came out more like around 2005, so they didn't really get into mindfulness because it wasn't, wasn't popular yet. Uh, but they did show, you know, for example, at one time there were tons of books out there about the Tao of leadership, right? And all this kind of stuff. They went through a cycle of the Tao and then we went into Zen, you know, Zen and management and Zen this and that. Um, so there's a whole history of what they call it a privatized spirituality and and using sort of the exoticness of asian uh ancient there's another word that's code word that's used to kind of kind of give the kind of marketing cultural cachet this stuff is really you know quite uh exotic uh but the the real intention is to create these highly individualistic spiritualities that can be put to use uh, in corporations and in society uh, to further uh, capitalist uh, interest. I mean, bottom line, that's it. <laughs> um, so there's the colonization, right? There's a, the colonizing. Uh, it's, a, it's kind of a Western conceit that you see in the mindfulness movement too, uh, that uh, we have the essence of the Dharma, or we have the essence of Buddhism. We have, in fact, 
We have the authentic mindfulness because as Westerners, we know better than those superstitious Asian Buddhists. Uh, and, uh, you know, in a way, uh, Richard King calls this uh, an epis- epistemic violence, right? And we're, you know, we're like border guards, you know, we, you know, you gotta, you know, you can't come into the country, you can't bring those ideas until you kind of like shed that cultural baggage. Uh, And uh, so until you've gotten rid of all this, you know, Asian cultural baggage, uh, rituals, super normal psychic power, cities, uh, all that kind of stuff. Because uh, we know what's best. We're Westerners. We're rationalists. And uh, that's kind of what's happened with mindfulness, too, is that, uh, it, you know, we've colonized it uh, and uh, scientized it, uh, uh, created this sort of uh, a commitment to scientific materialism. Uh, and uh, we end up then with a kind of a really boxed in view of what the self is. It's kind of the self is sort of this private interiorized entity and all meditative experiences are then reduced to to brain states or personal achievements. Uh, and uh, you know that you know that's kind of what I see happening in that in that realm. And in a way it's a whitewashing too, right? Yeah. It's a white it's a whitewashing of of Buddhism and mindfulness. A lot of people of color have been, you know, maybe not understanding it in this academic lens, but intuitively have understood there's something very white and something very racist about all this, right? You, you take something, you get rid of the Asian parts, which are seen as the trappings, like you mentioned, and, and make it palatable for white Americans. So it becomes like mindfulness or this part of Buddhism or even yoga is being touted as the steroid for the brain that makes you an uberman white superhero, which, you know, a lot of the alt-right also loves. The alt-right also loves yoga and meditation and stuff like that. But but beyond that, the mainstream is this, what you talked about, the science even like race science type of language and personality science that is used to sell mindfulness that can be uh, very cringy. And then uh, I think in, in your book, you mentioned that John Kabat-Zinn also said that MBSR um, or his form of mindfulness, the lineage starts here in the good old uh, US of A. Like, I just want to say it just feels very racist to me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at the I mean, this is not just limited to secular mindfulness. It's also in the Western Buddhist community too. Um, this whole, I, you know, this whole sort of elite. It's uh, you know, mind the mindfulness movement. First of all, it's not a movement, right? <laughs> it's 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 a marketing campaign um, that's led by elites, white upper class elites at the helm, right? That are preaching this kind of messianic con game of uh, global salvation right and they're saying look we're all human you know it's all universal and and um and that's kind of covers up the inequalities of how people suffer too right we use this kind of white privileged universal universality discourse that basically situates uh not just white people but the whole mindfulness uh, uh discourse outside of culture Yes. Right. It's like, oh, Asian culture, that's baggage. But <laughs> but we got the universal dharma. We got the essence. And so we're context free. 
we're 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 immune to our culture because we got the we got the extraction we we've, we've extracted it like almost like strip mining or fracking you know we we've got the secret ingredient and we're putting it into a petri dish that we could study uh through fmri uh, uh magnetic uh, resonance uh brain imaging and all that kind of stuff um it's like that ben shapiro kind of logic where it's like facts don't care about your feelings right logic and science and fMRIs don't care about your culture. <laughs> <laughs> Never heard that one. That's a good one. Well, I'm just making it up. <laughs> okay, go. that's very good. Just from listening to you, that's that's <laughs> what I had in my mind. Yeah, and it's it it creates a myth. You know, it creates this myth. Um, basically, it downplays the role, the very important role that context, cultural context, play in in informing uh, these practices. Because um, context always informs practices. We can't make sense out of even deep meditative experiences without some sort of historical, social, or doctrinal context. Uh, and I don't think people appreciate that mindfulness is a social and embodied practice situated within a historical, cultural, economic context. Right. So when we move from the medical center with MBSR, where it started, into corporations, and then we take it there from there into into the U.S. military. Uh, these contexts reframe and repurpose these practices. So mindfulness is always grounded in some sort of form of life that includes individual and collective dimensions. And I think that's what uh, why it's so short-sighted in, in the, in, uh, among many mindfulness teachers. Yeah, when it was confined to the hospital, uh, you know, in a way, mindfulness was like a genie that got out of the bottle. And so all the opportunistic elements, spiritual entrepreneurs came in. And um, I, I see a parallel. Uh, this may seem a little too critical, but I see a parallel between Kabat-Zinn and Timothy Leary. <laughs> um, in a way, because Timothy Leary kind of went off the deep end and said, you know, LSD will solve every problem you have in society, yes. right? And it became a little too enthusiastic in his... Uh, in his mess, uh, mess, messianic zeal. And in a way, you see the same thing with Kabat-Zinn. He says, you know, mindfulness is going to usher in a global renaissance, and it's going to create world peace. It's going to get rid of fake news. Uh, all these kind of grandiose claims, uh, uh, which are kind of uh, ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> Yeah. What is the point of having the ability to be aware of my conditions if it doesn't tell me how to change my conditions, right? Like, how is mindfulness going to help anything if it's not paired with something else? Well, that's a good point. And I, I think that's the juncture we're at uh, with, with mindfulness is that, you know, if it's strictly a palliative or a therapeutic technique, yes, it can offer some uh, very modest benefits, right? Nobody's going to deny that. Uh, but then what? Uh, you know, how can we, uh, you know, create more of a social or civic form of mindfulness that helps people to connect the dots, right? Let's connect the dots between people's personal troubles and public issues, as I was mentioning earlier. And, um, and, and I think that's kind of the next wave, or hopefully the next wave. Uh, you know, there's, there's people on the fringes, there's groups on the fringes that are starting to think along these lines to create more of a civic oriented or civic mindfulness that goes beyond just individualistic stress reduction or, or behavioral management and, or simply just a, uh, a self-care uh, coping tool. Uh, and 
But, you know, that, you know, and here's the thing that, you know, mindfulness, the way it kind of grafted into our culture, it, it kind of landed in medicine, right? First in medicine with John Kabat-Zinn and in psychology and in science. And I think that's part of the limits of mindfulness is when you, uh, when you use discourse or you use conceptual and explanatory narratives that are uh, uh, confined to the biomedical paradigm or the scientific paradigm or the psychology paradigm, then you are stuck in only treating individuals or having a very narrow view uh, of uh, what people are experiencing. As, and then you reduce it. Then you, the neoliberal uh, machine, uh, you know, wins when that when we're limited in that way. So we got to find ways to reorient uh, and reframe these practices away from instrumental ends towards a more prophetic kind of mindfulness, a prophetic form of mindfulness. And I use the word prophetic more from the Judeo-Christian tradition. Uh, you know, there's. I think there's really good parts of the Judeo-Christian tradition that, uh, you know, that could be. Uh, they're part of our culture. I mean, we're living in a Judeo-Christian uh, Abrahamic, Abrahamic uh, tradition. I mean, is part of our Western culture, and um, you know, people like Cornell West, right? He's a big inspiration to me, and he's a good example of that. That. Uh, that can call out these injustices and and connect mindfulness or or, or situate it within a more socially engaged uh, uh, framework that's intent on on social justice. And so this way, uh, mindfulness can become almost like a Gandhian truth force for social and political change. But we can't do that to be liberated from its complicity with a neoliberal ethos and the biomedical paradigm. And that's that's kind of where we're at. Well, when you were talking about where it started, where mindfulness-based uh, stress reduction started in the hospitals, uh, it kind of made me think about thoughts and prayers, right? We use it as a joke now whenever <laughs> something bad happens. But there used to be a lot of science about, oh, in the hospital setting, when people have hope, when they when they have actual thoughts and prayers, when they pray, there is some positive benefit, right? Yeah. So in that context... Uh, it makes sense. But then outside of that context, then mindfulness, just like thoughts and prayers, is like kind of telling you we don't need social reform. We just need to appeal to the moral sense of our oppressors. We we all just need to meditate. We all just need to send out our thoughts and prayers, right? In that context, it makes no sense. In the context of the hospital where it started, okay, I get it now, you know? Yeah, that's very interesting. And, and, and what's also interesting is that uh, there has been scientific research on prayer. Right for health benefits, and and then even in the context of the hospital, right? If if you're sick and you're just trying to increase your own personal happiness, you you don't have the luxury of thinking about the suffering of others, right? So that's fine. Yeah. But but in the real world, in the regular world, when you're outside of the hospital, if you're only trying to increase your own personal happiness without lessening the suffering of others, it it seems kind of sociopathic to me. Yep, and I think that's. That's exactly what my critique is aimed at, is this is sort of the uh, uh, maybe the unintended consequences uh, that people have not appreciated yet, uh, because this is exactly where uh, the neoliberal elites would like to have us in our little cocoons, not making waves, not making trouble.
right? Just just coping and just, you know, looking out for ourselves. That's absolutely right. Even in neoliberal terms, uh, in economics, there's something called perverse incentives where <laughs> it has some kind of, you know, crazy consequences that you didn't intend, right? Like uh, there was like something about like one of the studies is about like um, people getting paid if they kill a certain number of rats. So the unintended consequences was that people would just start farming rats and it made the problem worse because they just wanted to farm rats and then kill them and then get paid on it. Right. Wow. Probably. Right. Habits in a lot of these people had good intent. Maybe they didn't start out trying to be a tool for neoliberalism. No, no. But then they started individualizing and uh, atomizing a lot of like social problems into individual ones, relying on rugged individualism and also uh, victim blaming. Well, yeah. Plus, um, you know, there's good sociological research on how North Americans uh, have a, a huge, massive blind spot uh, about uh, culture that that we think we don't have a culture. Like we're exceptional, you know. We're just individuals. <laughs> we're just individuals, you know. Yeah, what yeah. culture? What are you talking about? Um, and uh, and 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 so you know when you situate mindfulness uh, in that kind of hyper individualistic already that soil of individualism, uh, and then you limit it in terms of a biomedical paradigm, then you end up what, what you end up with, with what we have now, uh, you know this kind of uh, social myopia uh, or social amnesia, where mindfulness functions uh, as a form of social myopia. You know, if we go back, you know, way, 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 way back uh, into early Buddhism, and I, I'm not a scholar of Buddhism, but I have a little knowledge um, that it about 200 years, uh, about 200 years after the Buddha died, maybe maybe a little bit longer, uh, there was this king, uh, King Ashoka, King Ashok, and uh, he was a pretty violent king in terms of his conquest and everything. And it was one battle that he uh, went through, and it was such a massacre that it really kind of shook him up. And he actually converted uh, to Buddhism. Uh, by that time, you know, Buddhism had become more popular in, in India. Uh, and uh, he really uh, kind of took it seriously. And he saw his rule or his, uh, his rule to be uh, to transmit uh, Buddhist politics. Uh, you know, it basically kind of, uh, I mean, he was still an autocrat. It was, it was not a democracy by any means. Uh, but uh, I, I think there's a, a historical example of, of, of how someone could uh, take these practices and see them more as a sociopolitical uh, uh, movement, right? Um, and I don't see that happening yet. Uh, we, saw it happen, we saw it happen with Gandhi. Uh, for a short period of time, um, and and for that matter, uh, you know, I think the civil rights movement was uh, obviously uh, driven by religious impulses uh, and nonviolence. Uh, you know, the principles of nonviolence, uh, but also very prophetic, calling out the Vietnam War, calling out economic injustice. Uh, and so we have historical examples of how we could do this, or we could at least, you know, try to learn as much as we can from these examples. And, you know, the socially engaged Buddhist movement is very, very small and very minute compared to, uh, you know, Western Buddhist uh, 
are themselves very small percentage, right, in the United States. So it's it's very small movement. Um, but I, I think this ethic of activism can be wedded together uh, with uh, contemplative uh, practices. It doesn't have to be just mindfulness. No, no. No, not at all. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I think, in, I think we have uh, a potential for that. Uh, and, you know, Buddhism is, is a living tradition, or at least it should be. Uh, you know, it's not some museum piece that we should like, oh, well, you know, oh, well, you know, the Buddha was not a social activist, so, you know, we, we can't really do that. I mean, you know, that's, that's really ridiculous. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, because we're inventing it as we go along, as we translate it into the West. It's just that the translation has been limited through psychology and medicine. It has not, you know, what if, what if Buddhism, you know, what if it landed with the Quakers? Yeah. You know, what if, what if it, you know, uh, you know, what if it landed with, you know, uh, anarchist or socialist back in the thirties, we'd see a completely different form of it. And so it's a modern innovation. And, uh, I, I think, it, uh, you know, we, it's not cast in stone and mindfulness is a curriculum too. The way it's taught, it's taught in some sort of curricula, some sort of program, some sort of format. It's a pedagogy. And so we can bring in anti-oppressive pedagogies, critical pedagogies into into these programs. Much like uh, with Christianity, right? There's the liberation theology. Liberation which is... theology. In fact, I'm, I'm just trying to get up. I'm trying to read about that now. Uh, I mean, there's tremendous, I think, inspiration from liberation theology. Uh, yeah, that's the kind of direction I think we could take mindfulness. Definitely. Yeah. The reason, uh, I've, I wanted to bring you on this show and talk to you is because there's so much parallel with, uh, your thoughts and, uh, and what you're doing and actually with this podcast and what I want to do, because, um, you know, you come from a tradition of academia and, uh, Buddhist, uh, practice. I come from it from martial arts which also has overlap with some Buddhism and Taoism and some other stuff. And, and talking about small, minute group of, uh, you know, uh, socially conscious uh, Buddhists in the U.S. is just as small for socially conscious martial artists in the U.S. And so I also feel that parallel. But the critique I've always had about martial arts is that when it's not paired with philosophy or a code of ethics, then you're basically training human attack dogs. Yeah. Seems like mindfulness too, when it's not properly paired with justice or ethics, is more dangerous than it is helpful, at least to society. So much like martial artists who learn martial arts without ethics, I'm sure they think it benefited them on an individual level, right? They benefited as a person, but I don't know if the world is better off with them existing where they have all these skills without proper ethics, right? And I, so I think... uh what I always say is funny that you talked about uh, living because I always say martial arts is living art. It's always in the process of becoming. It's always changing. So now it needs ethics. What is martial arts without the ethics, without the activism, without the reform aspect of it? Yeah, I think there's direct parallels. Absolutely. I, I could see that. Yeah, I think you're, you're really uh, onto something there. I know mindfulness is touted as this thing that reduces stress, especially in the workplace. Does it even do that well? Does it, does it really, does the evidence show it's really improving people's uh, overall sense of well-being and happiness? Uh, I'm not sure. 
And, you know, when you when you try to do uh, research in field, unlike in the laboratory, then it becomes even more murky because you can't have control groups. <laughs> Wasn't there some stuff in your book, though, you wrote where it made people like more uh, aware of how much, you know, they were unhappy at work. And so uh, it was having like a backfire effect. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I think I think that there has been work like that. It's, there's also been work recently that, you know, the, a lot of the mindfulness teachers say, well, you know, if you just practice mindfulness, it'll make people kinder and more compassionate and, and lead to these uh, uh, pro-social behaviors is what they call them. And uh, there's been some work by a friend of mine uh, in the UK, uh, Miguel uh, Farias. Uh, he's done some really, really good work. He wrote a book called The Buddha Pill, which is now, <laughs> which is now I think, in its second edition. Um, but that's one of the major claims. You know, the mindfulness advocates will say that, you know, practicing mindfulness in and of itself will lead to these uh, <clears throat> pro-social behaviors, compassion, al altruism, empathy, and and reduce aggression and prejudice. But um, actually, he did a, a, a meta-analytic study, which is a study of studies on the effects of meditation, uh, on these pro-social behaviors. And uh, yeah, it just came out last year. Uh, and he, I think he found uh, that there was a lot of experimenter allegiance and experimenter bias in these studies. And that's when the teacher of the intervention, the meditation or mindfulness intervention was also the author of the published study, <laughs> then you found uh, increases in compassion. But if you subtracted that out or factored that out, uh, the experimental allegiance problem, then the results actually disappeared. So I, I think there's a lot of this uh, problem of experimenter bias, experimenter allegiance in the, in the mindfulness literature. And, and there's been a lot of articles about that. So uh, they didn't find any evidence or significant effect, really, that it reduced aggression or prejudice or anything like that. And I think you could just poll people here where I live, Los Angeles, in the Hollywood area. Just poll people and just ask them about uh, all the people you know who meditate, who do mindfulness. Are they better people than they were before? And I think a lot of us will be like, we know plenty of assholes who meditate <laughs> and they're not any better people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine that. Yes. <laughs> so, well, this is great chatting with you, Ron. You've been more than generous with your time. Um, so where can people find you and your book? Uh, RonPerser.com. Uh, my book is McMindfulness, How Mindfulness Became the New Capital Spirituality. Uh, you can get it, uh, of course, on Amazon, but also at independent bookstores. Now that's the show. We've grown Southpaw purely from word of mouth, so that means it's all organic. So if you're already spreading the word, please continue to do so. If you've never done it, please consider telling your friends, sharing on social media, and also leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. This will make it easier for others to find us. And since this is independent media, every dollar you pledge on Patreon goes a long way in the production of the show and will help us expand with more content on more platforms. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod.